0: No. So, good afternoon, everyone. I'm to, I know I'm starting one minute early, but I want to get through all my accreditation stuff to give more time to our speakers. Um, so, thank you for coming. I'm Deb Hastings. I direct continuing nursing education at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and uh, we're really excited to uh, see you here at our second session of our nursing research grand rounds. Uh, this one is entitled Evidence-Based Practice, Addressing Delirium in the Critical Care Setting." And just so you want to, if you want to note this, our next nursing research grand rounds will be September fourteenth, and the following one is December fourteenth. So just put it in your calendar to make sure you can join us. And I also want to welcome everyone who is joining this session online. Um, be sure to sign in if you're here in the room. You must attend at least eighty percent of the program in order to receive credit, and this activity um, carries one contact hour. For folks who are viewing online, Judy Langhans is here, and she's monitoring your email. So she's not checking her email while you're talking. She's monitoring her email sure. um, during the presentation. So feel free to email her with any questions, um, and she will relay them to the speakers um, at the conclusion of their presentation. Also, for folks who are online, we'd like you to email Judy within an hour after the completion of the program, letting her know that you participated. Um, She'll need your name, um, your uh, license, and uh, either LPNRN, uh, APRN, whatever that might be, and your zip code. And Judy's email is judith.m, as in May, Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at Hitchcock.org. Everyone attending today will receive a link to an online evaluation after the program. Um, And uh, even if you don't need the credit, we would appreciate it um, if you could return that evaluation, because we do plan future programs in part based on your input. Um, Let's see. The learning objectives for today's program will be part of the slide set. And um, let's see. We want you to know that neither our speakers nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or a relationship with a commercial entity and no one refused to disclose. I think that's it. So now I get to introduce our speakers. <laughs> this is Natalie Kennett for those of you who don't already know her. And Natalie is the Clinical Nurse Specialist for Cardiovascular Services. She received her BSN from St. Anselm College and her MSN from University of Phoenix. And this is Sarah Chin, and Sarah's a clinical nurse on ICCU Siskiyou, and she received her bachelor's degree from Norwich and is working on her master's degree in Norwich. When are you going to finish? i um, finishing August. Awesome. So, all right.
1: <laughs> so, without further ado, I'll let you take it away. Thanks. Um, so, I know that the original message had been that um, Margaret Emmons was going to present this, and we have been working on the team together, and uh, Margaret, unfortunately, could not... Be here, so I am just gonna take over and go with it. Um, so, thank you, everyone. We um, are presenting on our journey through um, using the evidence based practice Iowa model um, to promote quality care in the CVCC and ICCU on a project that really is kind of very near and dear to our hearts at this point. So, just to go through our objectives, we're gonna talk a little bit about the Iowa model of evidence based practice to promote quality care. Uh, talk about the steps of the model used to research findings and to improve patient care, and how we applied this to our practice change in ICCU and CDCC. So the purpose of the Iowa model it really allows nurses to focus on knowledge and problem focus triggers, leading staff to question current nursing practices and whether care can be improved through the use of current research findings. And that is a quote from Marita Titler, who is actually what got us started on this project. And this is, and I know that you can't actually read it. I printed it off on the slide to try to see if I could like get it to look better. And I was like, nah, I still can't read any of those words. So this is an example of the model. And I'm going to break it down as we go through today. Um, but this is kind of what it looks like in a table format, if you will. So the Iowa model really guides clinical decision making and evidence-based practice implementation, both the practitioner and organizational perspectives. The steps of the model include the selection of a topic, forming a team, um, evidence retrieval, literature search, grading the evidence, developing an intervention based on the evidence, implementing the intervention, and then evaluating the intervention. We did it a little bit backwards in that we really picked our team first and then went through trying to decide what our topic would be because we covered two the same similar but also very different units because we were focusing on critical care and then we also had a step-down med surge unit trying to decide something that would impact both areas. So when selecting a topic using the Iowa model, um, the format that we used is PICO, so the question um, is asked, And it goes through the population of interest, the intervention that you're hoping to implement, a comparison of what you will do, and then the outcome that you're hoping to really achieve by doing all of these things and through your evidence-based practice. Things that you want to consider when picking a topic, really thinking about the priority and magnitude of the problem. So is this something that you can take on? Is this going to be too big? Is this going to be too small? Does it really not have a very small um, focus area, the application of all areas of practice, again we had two areas when we were thinking about it, we had two areas that we had to cover and it had to impact them, so it was both a critical care unit and a step-down unit, but at least covering the same types of patients, so it's all cardiology, cardiac surgery patients, the um, contribution to improving care, the availability of data and evidence in the problem area, the multidisciplinary nature of the problem, and the commitment of staff. So on Monday, September fifteenth, 2015, we were um, very lucky to go to an evidence-based practice clinical inquiry workshop at the Hanover Inn with Dr. Marita Titler, who is really an expert in evidence-based practice and implementing the, and using the Iowa model, and it was a really awesome experience for our team. Um, she, There were multiple teams there, and she really helped us work through our problem statements and to help us decide, you know, narrow our focus. and really think is this a project that's going to be meaningful and what do we want to get out of this and how will we implement it and really helped us start thinking of what our next steps would be. So it was a really valuable experience for us to have and it helped us build us as a team too because some of the people in the group didn't really know each other very well, uh, which we'll get into, but so it was helping form the team as well, which was very nice. And she's from the National Nursing Practice Network, which just the mission statement of that is to foster exceptional healthcare outcomes of individuals, groups, and committees receiving nursing care in a variety of healthcare environments, advance professional nursing practice through application of evidence and care delivery, support nursing leadership development for evidence based practice, and increase the understanding of mechanisms and strategies that foster the use of evidence for those delivering healthcare services. So that's a lot of words. So, Going through this, our first, we again, we did it a little backwards. We had our team first because we all were very interested in going to this workshop and said, well, we'll just make a team and then we'll think of a question that applies to everybody and we'll go from there. Um, but our question we ended up coming up with after going through a few was, um, the population is the cardiac surgery, cardiology patients in both the CVCCR critical care unit and our progressive care unit, the ICCU, Um We wanted to um, using the confusion assessment method or CAM ICU scale and the CAM scale to improve recognition of patients suffering from ICU delirium and prompt proactive intervention to minimize consequences of delirium. Um, use, a, use of the CAM ICU and CAM scale on every patient who meets mm-hmm. tra- screening criteria, and then our outcome would be improved recognition of delirium. So this was kind of sparked um, because there is a larger group um, that is working on. On the, it's the ICU liberation group, it's working on um, delirium and they had put in the CAM ICU into EDH and they had really great success in the ICU, Miriam, can... <laughs> they had somewhat Moderate success. Modern initial success.
2: Moderate <laughs> initial <laughs>
1: success, a little bit better than the CVCC had and one of our uh, members of the group was a CVCC nurse who's our, our practice area council leader and she said, you know, this is a problem, we have this assessment, but we're really not doing it, we don't understand how to do it, I don't, you know, people really are against it, or just think, there were a lot of comments about, well, I know how to assess for delirium and I can tell if my patient is delirious. And it was like, but can you, can you really tell? So we really wanted to dig into that a little bit deeper because we weren't using a scale that was available, and why weren't we, and what could we do to help with this assessment? and to help people understand why the scale is so important. So just a little bit of background on delirium and why we felt this topic was so important. So delirium is defined as a transient, usually reversible cause of cerebral dysfunction and manifests clinically with a wide range of neuropsychiatric abnormalities. It can occur at any age, but it occurs more commonly in patients who are elderly and have compromised mental status, especially patients that have been admitted to the ICU or have been intubated. And it's been shown to increase mortality, it's been shown to increase length of stay, it's been shown to um, cause cognitive impairment or worsen cognitive impairment. It's had a, um, shown to cause functional decline and really decrease quality of life. And one of the things that really spoke to us was looking at patients' stories about delirium and their experience with it. Um, and as we talked about this more with staff and as we've gone through this and talked about it more that really has come out in that People are recognizing that they have may have had a patient that had delirium and really not thought about it at the time But now in retrospect are thinking oh my goodness like what must that have felt like for this patient who? Just felt uncomfortable telling me that they were you know seeing bubbles floating in their room or um, you know, they felt scared, or they came back to me after and told me that, you know, the whole time they thought that, you know, the sitting in my hospital room while CSI was on, I thought I was stuck in a prison break, and it was really frightening for me because I was a prison guard before I retired, and it was really frightening to be one of my worst fears. So, A lot more has come out, but that is one of the reasons that we really, really wanted to focus on this because it is all about the patient and the patient's story, and this is a very scary experience for patients and does have a huge impact on their stay and their quality of life. So a little bit about delirium. More Um, So it affects 11 to 42% of medically ill patients and complicates 24 to 89% of hospitalizations for elderly patients with dementia. Nurses play a key role in recognition of delirium, yet delirium is often unrecognized by nurses. Signs and symptoms such as acute onset, fluctuations of symptoms, inattention, disorganized thinking, memory impairment, perceptual disturbances, psychomotor agitation, retardation, and changes in circadian cycle and the hypoactive variant are not recognized. So people often say, well, it's very clear to tell when a patient is delirious and they're telling you, I, I see bubbles on the walls and that's really strange, or they're really acting out and getting anxious, and you can really see that, but that hypoactive delirium often goes unrecognized because they're quiet, they don't want to tell you about it. You know, maybe, they aren't able to tell you about it, we don't know what they're experiencing, and so we're not able to recognize it. Um,
3: I don't know if you have anything to add as far as what patients, have. What patients experience. Um, well, I've also been called a friendly zombie during the night show, So <laughs> I think that was also one of the yeah.
1: but are fun many. Yeah. yeah. And in the IC, in, and at least in CVCC, I think we had somewhat of an awareness of this. Um, ICC, one of the things that we noticed is that Really, we weren't assessing for it at all. And one of the common things, oh, well, they're just wifty. So how many people have said, well, this patient's just wifty, and just passed it off as a, oh, well, that's a thing that happens. But really, what impact is that having for that patient, and how can we manage that better? So some of the hallmarks of delirium, decreased attention span and a waxing and waning type of confusion, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral symptoms, some of the symptoms include clouding of consciousness, difficulty maintaining or shifting attention, disorientation, illusions, hallucinations, fluctuating levels of consciousness, uh, dysphagia, dysarthria, tremor. So it's just, there are so many things that this can affect. And there are, I think, one thing we found, again, through this project is that people only recognized a few of these and really associated it with hallucinations or disorientation and didn't really think about all of the other signs and symptoms that really went into delirium. (laughs) So again, we did it a little backwards. We'd already had our team formed, but we did add on to our team after. So the second step in the Iowa model is forming a team. And it's important to realize that the team is responsible for development, implementation, and evaluation. So you want people on the team that are really engaged in this, but also are in a position that they can help influence it. we had a really good um, multidisciplinary team, I think, mostly nursing, but um, in a variety of settings and roles. The composition of the team should be directed by the chosen topic and include all interested stakeholders. Again, we did it backwards. Um, a bottom-up approach to implementing evidence-based practice is essential to as change is more successful when initiated by frontline practitioners rather than imposed by management. So, Our team um, was me, um, Sarah, Jane Womack, uh, CVCC nurse and the practice area council chair for CVCC, um, Karen Thorpe, who is PT, Bethany Albrecht, who is an RN unit supervisor for ICCU, CISCU, and CVCC, and then as we went on, um, and Margaret was on the original team as well, who's a nurse practitioner on the um, ICCU CISCU. And then as we went on, we added a few more people, um, so some of the clinic nurse, clinical nurses. So Genevieve Loria is a CVCC nurse, um, Tabitha Gazal is an ICCU-SISCU nurse, Josie Kenny is an ICCU-SISCU nurse, and Sarah Gabrowski is the same. And they were really excited about this project when they heard that we had gone to the, the conference and wanted to really be engaged in mm-hmm. this and have been fabulous in doing, helping us read many 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 articles and tell us what they thought about them Um, and so that has been really great
3: and really taking advantage and using the practice area council to really spread the word really helped as well so we have a a solid group that will really be able to help implement as we roll out on the floor. So
1: So the third step is evidence retrieval Um, so there are many databases available to be searched Um, and so we searched them all Um, And spent a really, I think we've really spent up to this point a bulk of our time really doing this because there is so much information out there on delirium right now that we really wanted to do our due diligence and make sure that we were looking at everything that we could, especially focusing on the cardiology and cardiac surgery patients. Um, And one one of the articles that I found the most interesting was an article that was written about um, patients that surgical patients, so it's a traditional surgical aortic valve replacement, and then comparing it to um, a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, which is a relatively new procedure that we do, and to see that article and comparing the levels of delirium in them and showing how less is actually in the, tran- the TAVR, the transcatheter aortic valve replacement, and th- reading that and thinking about, well, yeah, we don't, they're under conscious sedation, we don't intubate them, they their length of stay is a lot less, and, um, So it's really interesting to see that and to really see how, oh yeah, like these things do really impact. Being intubated and being the ICU really does impact um, if you're going to get delirium. So through through reviewing these articles, um, really the questions that you should ask, so what's the question posed by the study? What is the design of the study? What is the description of the sample? What were the procedures of the study? Um, Critical questions that should be asked when appraising evidence include, what were the results of the study? And are the results valid? Will the results help me in caring for my patients? So we went through this and the approach we took because we knew we had a lot of articles to review um, and we couldn't meet every single day and discuss every single article is that we really took, we divided up the work. We each took some articles to review And then we found the ones that we really, really thought, yeah, this applies, this one's great, let's do this one, and we brought that back to the group and then discussed that at our group meetings and what we wanted to do with that and what category that fell in. And to keep track of all this, because at first we didn't really have a tracking form, and as we were going through it, we found out that some of us were reading the same articles because we got confused with our lists. So then we're like, I read that article. No, I read it. Well, that was a really great article. So that's good we both read it. But now we have this whole list that didn't get read. So we started um, creating a tracking sheet that we put on our SharePoint site so that we could all access it um, and keep track of who read what article, what did it mean, and did we think it was helpful. So just the things that we really kept on this form, the author, title, journal, and year, the purpose, objective, the study, design, sample size the instrument or patient eligibility, findings, outcomes and then any comments that we had. And so an example of one is here. Which I'm not going to go through, but so once we had all of that, then we had to start grading the evidence. And I think we kind of did this a little bit as we were going, but to grade the evidence, the team will address quality areas of the individual research and the strength of the body of evidence overall. Once the evidence has been gathered, evaluated, and synthesized, one should determine if there is enough evidence to support a practice change. Evidence can be quantitative or qualitative. So this is really the pieces that we brought back to the group as a whole and discussed. So. Um, Again, we read all these articles, and then we would all come back as a group. And if someone couldn't be there, we had that tracking form to look back, and we could put in the comment, "This one wasn't helpful," or "This one had this piece of information that was really helpful, but you know, I don't know if we necessarily need if we find one that's really, you know, a lot better that we can use." So that was it. Was really good. It was a really good experience for all of us, especially I think some of our the. Our additions to the team who hadn't necessarily read articles in that way before or really thought about it. At first, they were really hesitant to take those articles. Can I take one article? And didn't really know, like, I think it was good. So we were able to talk through that as a group and say, well, what would make this article useful to us? What does it tell us? What does it talk about? And so then the next step was developing the intervention. So the team members came together to set recommendations for practice, um, the type and strength of evidence used in practice needs to be clear and based on consistency of replicated studies. The design of studies and recommendations made should be based on identifiable benefits and risks to the patient. Um, And this sets the standard of practice guidelines, assessment, actions, and treatments as required. And so um, we decided, again, we kind of knew what we wanted we knew what we wanted to do, we were gonna implement the CAM-ICU, and we were looking at how had this successfully been done, what education could we apply, and then what do we do with that? So one of the things we had talked about in this was, okay, we're asking nurses to complete this assessment, but what does that mean? So it doesn't have a lot of meaning if I ask you to do assessment, and then you say, okay, this patient is is CAM-ICU positive, but now what? So we realized that we also have to talk about what interventions come after that, because we can't just talk about the assessment without the interventions. Um, so we also then had to kind of go back and say, okay, now we have to look at the interventions. And one of the sites that has been really amazing and helpful um, is that ICU um, delirium, ICU liberation website. We've looked through the ABCD app bundle because they wanted to go through almost the entire alphabet which is dramatic, but um, which has been really helpful. And Miriam's been awesome, too, because Miriam is leading that group for the ICU and has been really helping us to push along and to think about it in different ways. Um, And so just as an example, um, so this is the CAM ICU. And so this is how we assess our patients. It is in EDH now, which was also a struggle because people were not really understanding how it worked and how to make it work in in EDH and getting frustrated with that and feeling like, well, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I don't know how to work it in the computer, so I'm not going to do it. And I, I, I did it. But not having that hard data going through each step, often steps were skipped. People didn't understand how to use it. One of the comments was, well, I can't use it on my intubated patients. And we're like, no, that's who it's for. It's for your intubated patient. So really getting people to understand what this is for and how to use it. And so the other thing, and I'll get into it, is that you know, people people love badge cards. They're really great. So people are like, well, let's make a badge card of this. And the ISU had made them, and they are very large. And so people are like, maybe we don't want that. I don't want a badge card. So people are really struggling with some of these things, like the you know, on, on a good day. I'm a very poor speller, so I would probably fail the inattention, because I'd be like, wait, what? What letter did you say? I don't know. So remembering how to go through um, some of the inattention where you have to spell out and have the patient squeeze your hand um, with A, with the letter A. And, of course, we picked Save a Heart as ours, because we're cardiac nurses, and that's what we do. (laughs)
4: Um,
1: And then people were really struggling with the disorganized thinking. Again, we probably are all mostly delirious. at a baseline, um, because we could not remember these questions and we're thinking, oh god, how are we going to remember these questions to ask people, because we're going to get in there and we're like, oh, we got to the questions part, now I have to remember what, I'm going to be right back, I'm just going to go get a sheet with the questions so I can ask you. And then the other piece of it was, um, the ICCU, so the ICCU-SISCU is not a critical care unit. This would not be an appropriate tool for them to use. So how? what do we have for them? And there is the confusion assessment method, which is just the regular old CAM that can be used on a med-surg progressive care floor. So we've been talking a lot about how to use that and get that because this had at least been on the radar of CVCC nurses. they would heard of it. There'd been some presentations. They've had some knowledge that this was a thing that they should be using. In ICCU SISCU, this really has not even been on the radar at all. They hadn't thought about it. We really haven't talked about delirium all that much and how to use the CAM and what does that mean and what do we do with that information? Where do I even document it? Which we learned was an EDH. (laughs) So, step six um, this is the implement the intervention. So, this is really um, where we are at this month. We've kind of for cardiovascular services deemed June the delirium month. Um, we're really, <laughs> we're all gonna be delirious in June with this beautiful summer weather, wanting to be outside. Um, and we are presenting at all of our staff meetings for this month to talk about delirium, the impact that it has, how to use the CAM ICU tool. Um, as far as the Iowa model goes, what it is is um, once the practice change has been instituted, there should be timeline for which practice change is evaluated for implementation to occur, aspects such as written policy, procedures, and guidelines that are evidence-based need to be considered. So we have we are implementing our practice now, um, doing a lot of education about the CAM on ICCU-SISCU, um, reiterating, again, for CVCC, the use of the CAM-ICU, how to use it. We're going to be making, um, badge cards for staff to use that are just instead of the, the giant badge card with all of that information the pieces that people forget so having the the spelling and the questions on here so that people can be like okay let me get to the questions I can ask you instead of trying to find a piece of paper or put it you know hang something in the room that falls off the wall or tape something to them, the med card, Because those are all things that we've talked about and people are like, that's not going to work, I don't want to do that, I wouldn't use that. Um, and then really talking, again, really talking about the patient cases. And I think that is what will speak the most to people as far as delirium goes. Because it, it is such a huge impact and it is something that we really, I think, don't think about as much as we should. And so we're really hoping to raise that awareness. And then talking about... Now that we've done the assessment, what do we do after that, and what do we do for interventions for these patients? So how do we, I've assessed you, so what can I do to help you, which there are very clear guidelines on that also um, that we found through all of our um, research. So again, June staff meetings, um, we are gonna include education regarding delirium, the CAM-ICU, the CAM, um, and nursing specific interventions such as early mobility, um, really orientate uh, for ICU like day-night orientation, focusing on that, um, and pain management. Um, we're working with our providers to be more aware. We've done a lot of talking I know at our last practice area council in the CVCC, we started talking about this. And somebody said, well, you know, we can't not manage their pain, so we have to keep their sedation up. And I said, you know, that's an interesting statement, because those are two different things. So we can sedate people, and they look super comfortable, but that's just because they're sedated. And that's not managing pain, because it's something different. It's something that is really an intervention that is really talked about is managing pain but also decreasing sedation. So that's something that we were hoping to work on going forward with this project. We also were lucky enough, we got an injury student for the summer, um, which will help us with the nursing education on 4East. One method that we found for our staff that is really helpful is just in the moment, side-by-side education. So we present at you know staff meetings, and we have it in huddles, and we have it on a weekly um, reminder and still feel like, oh, I've never heard of that. And so we found that it's really helpful, and we're lucky enough to have this Embree student that can go do really that one-on-one education in the moment to say, you know, did you do the CAM on this patient yet? Here, let me show you where it is. Let me show you how to go through it. Do you know why we're doing this? And what interventions can we do to help this patient? So we're really excited about that. And then we're collecting some um, data also.
5: Yeah, what's an Embree student? You want me to answer that? Yes, right I do. I don't know exactly. so, so there's a national grant that is run through the Dartmouth College that supports the um, promotion of science and advanced degrees in undergraduate students. And nationally it's been focused on um, bench researchers, but the Dartmouth College group had the good wisdom about six years ago to approach Paula and others here at the at Dartmouth to include nursing. So it's the only INBRAE grant in the country that has nursing students, so it's really exciting. So four undergraduates were chosen from 18 applicants this winter to come and spend 40 hours a week for the whole summer doing research projects. So they're there to work with the researchers. Some examples of past research that's been done, um, a manuscript was just submitted this about two weeks ago with someone working with Bridget Logan in PD Urology, and they just submitted a manuscript. and She was able to actually get credit for that over the course of the next school year. So it's a fabulous program, and um, they're coming next week, so we're having a welcome breakfast for them. They're gonna be here on campus, and so if you see them, say hi to them and welcome them. And, and many of them have been hired mm-hmm. after their INBRE experience. Is anybody in here, because I just started with this, is anybody here who was an inbra student? I'm sure we didn't miss anybody, but we have them in multiple units across the organization. So it's a fascinating program.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, and then again, the badge cards that we are gonna make that are much smaller and less dangerous.
4: I was just gonna make a suggestion with a badge card. Yeah. Um, I
3: don't know EDA. I don't know um, Epic very well, but when I used Meditech for um, teen years as an RN. We had smart links, not smart phrases, but smart links to our intranet that in those order sets we could just click on that smart link and it would pull up those questions because we got tired of the badges and so lugging that stuff around. So I don't know if EDH... Right now. It's, huh? all, it's all in EDH right now. Oh, it's all in okay. flow sheet row information. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people don't have that little thing expanded, then they can't see it, but mm-hmm. all you have to do is pop it over and it's there. Mm-hmm. Whether or not people want to use that is something that's very difficult, yeah, but when ahead. David and I designed it in EDH, we very specifically had that, that flow diagram in front yeah. of us with all the questions there, so people could, um, you know, because with the cam it's interesting, you don't necessarily have to do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You, if you have a patient that is awake, alert oriented, never had any changes, you do the first question that's sure, it. No, and so yeah. it has to populate based mm-hmm. on what you answer, so that's
1: why it's all built in there, but people use it in interesting ways. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that was part of it is that um, some of our people are really good at using EDH and know how to do that, know how to find it, and are, and then we have the group that are just really set on these badge cards and like, I need it in a, I need it in a form that I can look here and like, but it, sure, yep, yes. So yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's right there, but one thing that has been people really want these badge cards, so we're gonna make badge cards. Just the smaller, less sharp, and dangerous ones.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: the first round was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little aggressive. <laughs> so the next step in using the Iowa model is um, evaluation of the intervention. So um, evaluation is essential to seeing the value and contribution of the evidence in the practice. And so we're really, um, with the Enbre student, again, we're going to have her doing a little bit of reporting for us, seeing what we can pull out of EDH and also um, really watching practice and evaluating to see how we're doing. Are we using the um, CAM and CAM ICU more? and are we noticing more patients with delirium? Are we identifying them early? And are we putting implement- are we putting interventions in place to help manage these patients to reduce that risk, that the consequences of delirium? And so sorry, I speak very fast. <laughs> Um, So, translating evidence into practice takes time. Um, Evaluation of the evidence and development of evidence-based practice will empower nurses. um, And collective work and the use of tools such as the Iowa model can assist nurses with evidence-based practice. So, I think that one of the takeaways for us is really that um, using the Iowa model has been really helpful for us to structure how we wanted to do this and what steps we have to do and what order we should go in because I know that there were a few meetings where you know, we did, looked at a couple articles and we're like, yeah, those look good. Let's go do this. And we were like, no, we haven't really reviewed all of the articles that we could. And I'm sure there's more evidence out there. Um, so it really fo- forced us to take our time and to think about what we wanted to do and the impact that it would have. And then making sure that we had all the right people on the team um, and getting that buy-in. Again, bringing it back to the practice area councils was a awesome step that we did that was really helpful because we have that awareness now. And we got to hear some of that feedback from staff, the like the, well, my patient's sedated, so they're not in pain. Well, that doesn't mean that, or the I know how to assess for a delirium. I just go in and look at my patient and I can tell right away. I'm like, mm, okay, maybe. So we got to hear that. And then we got to hear the good stories too, where people said, you know, I had this patient one time that and he comes in and sees me every year when he has his clinic, you know, his primary care visit, he comes in and he'll try to see me and say, you know what? I'm, I still try not to be mad at you because I still remember you and I'm still scared of you from my experience. And I know that it wasn't real but I still emotionally carry that. And so hearing those experiences really also help drive us to say this is the right work. This is really what we want to do and this is going to have an impact on our, on our units. Do you have anything? Yeah, I kind of covered it. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, I talk really fast, and that was all the slides that Margaret had, so... <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? Yeah, yeah nice job.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of work with that. So my question is, um, how many articles did you have overall, and then what were the ones you selected for your final search, if you have a, a rough idea?
1: Oh. What would you say? And just in terms what of that whole process entire. that you went through? For a final, yeah. I think we oh, yeah. more than that. Yeah, I think at least 20 is a kind of our final um, collection. And I know, I, I couldn't tell you. I, we reviewed more than that. Um, yeah, what a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <far> <laughs> I I it I think, yeah. I think it was five years. I think there, there were some we, that were a little older. But. Yeah, we found a couple that were a little older. Um, but actually, those ended up being the ones that were are we like, oh well, this one isn't really useful because we read this other article that was more current. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was mostly, I think, with it a lot of them were very recent. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Are you considering publishing?
1: <laughs> yes. The, <yeah.
2: laughs> yes, we are.
1: <laughs> Jean says yes, so yes. yes. Uh, so I have a follow-up
5: um, so Jean Covey Director of Nursing Research, so obviously I have a I want to see you publish this. But I also want to make a comment about how much work, great presentation by both of you, and how much work you've done. Because I remember sitting in that room with you on September 15th and having you talk about what you were trying to decide to do and all the work that you've done since then. But it takes time. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that because to have a good outcome you have to really put in the time and thank you. And I'm sure your patients will thank you for all the time you put in. So great presentation.
2: I,
3: can you explain the, the differences between the CAM ICU and the regular CAM? I'm not familiar with the CAM.
1: Yeah the CAM's a lot shorter it's like a little bit more concise so it's just three questions I think. Um, the main difference is you don't have to speak. With the CAM. Yeah the, so the um, CAM ICU IC is really for oh, like, okay. yeah, really like the intubated patient um, so that's really the, the, it, the focus is different is the CAM is very focused on patients that Are able to communicate with you, and you are able to have a conversation with. Whereas the CAM ICU is focused on that intubated patient that can't necessarily say, "Yes, I'm delirious," or "Yes, I see bubbles or a double rainbow. Is that real?"
0: So it it appears to me that it's easy to be demented and delirious. Absolutely. Okay.
1: Yes, and that is one thing that um, again we went through this is that. They're different, but they can happen at the same time. So dementia is that steady decline over time that is permanent. And this delirium is a short, um, quick onset and reversible experience, but they can happen together. And often patients that are demented do get delirious because we've taken them out of their normal routines and their normal settings and put them into the hospital with all of these procedures and things they're unfamiliar with. and so recognizing that the delirium is on top of the dementia and treating that appropriately. So yeah, that's a really great point, Sheila. Yes,
2: Jeanette. Um, Were there any, I think when I run into, because I'm on the floor, on the cardiology floor, and I think usually I'm clued in a little bit when the family says, you know, dad just doesn't seem right. Like, it's my first time meeting him, and especially those very hypoactive people that You know, I just think, oh, he's sitting in the sun, he's reading the paper, he's doing his usual, and he's just quiet. And then the daughter comes in and is like, that is not my dad. And I'm like, oh, really? Well, okay, let's figure this out. You know, I thought he was just, you know, doing his thing. So is there any, did you read anything about? the family component and their communication with us because Absolutely. I think that's a huge thing Absolutely. for me on the floor because I don't I've never met them before. So Yeah, that know, was I, I do say wifty because sometimes they are, but is that a new wifty, an old wifty? I don't know. So. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we talked about like starting not only educating staff but also bringing it to families yes. too. So then that sometimes families they don't say anything to you and then they just kinda like let it be and like okay well maybe this is just the process but it doesn't help us as caregivers mm-hmm. to know like you know is that his normal is it not so if we provide families with that education mm-hmm. then they can be also components in their care.
2: And they'll be like, oh he had no idea on the phone what was going on. You yeah. know, where in person they're okay but on the phone because it's so abstract. Yeah.
1: And yeah. that helps me because I'm not talking on the phone, so <laughs> should call into patients' rooms now. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was definitely a huge component that we we definitely talked about and talking about how we can integrate that into one population that we were talking about. That because we're also doing another project on um, patient education for CT surgery patients and making a nice little booklet for them. And um, how can we include that in not a scary way, but in a this is something that may happen. Please tell us if you have symptoms of this and it's okay that you have it and we will manage it. But feel free to speak up and to say, you know, dad seems different or, you know, I feel different. And and feel free because we we don't want it to happen, but we expect that it will. It it is a thing that does happen.
4: I'm so glad you
1: brought that up because uh, in the
4: pre-op setting, in the clinic area, it's really important to have what we can control, which is the planned TAVR, the planned AVR, the planned bypass. I mean, we're going to have plenty of emergencies where delirium is acute and scary and more traumatic. Whereas if you have this pre-op teaching that you're talking about, leaving that in would be important. Also from another case management perspective is homegoing or placement. Can't move a delirious patient. That has to be sorted. And dementia is one thing, but delirium, they have to remain acute. And then we really need to dial in on, on treating this. And it's pain, right? Anxiety is pain. So it's, it's another thing to re- I'm really glad to hear the strong work. The only thing that makes me unhappy about all of our projects is the time it takes. Because we're in such a fast society now, right? We have to get, we have to move on things. And that's it. It just takes time. So yay, I'm glad you also have this person who can help you out this summer. The other thought I had was who are your champions in your um, units who are going to help roll this out and get the buy-in and have it incorporated into practice just like when you're looking
1: at the chest tube output or you're looking at other things that you're also looking at this.
4: Who are your champions in the unit? Have you identified them?
1: Yep. So that um, they're the members of our team, the um, clinical nurses um, that are part of our practice area council that really, again, they have... Really been engaged and excited with this project, and um, really are excited to start start moving forward with it. Um, and we have recently we hadn't involved them originally, and really have started to involve them a lot more now. So through the practice area council, um, that those are our set of champions. Yeah. Last and, comment. and thanks.
3: they're also they're also RNs, and there are that we have buy-in from the LNAs as well, yeah. so that everyone is.
4: Included so it helps keep each other in the loop, but good, and you the know, the physician work. group, etc. Yep. Right, getting the physician yep. group. We got new residents coming in May, June, Get the whole or June, July, actually, I guess I should say. Very good, strong work here. Replicate it, <laughs> right? We could take you, you've got some good traction, so you can get some other things you have yeah. to introduce. Yeah, uh, to go back to the family item a little
3: bit, um, as Natalie mentioned. The beginning of our talk that we are part of the ICU liberation group which is a national collaborative and technically just our medical ICU was part of it but the way EDH works everyone gets to be a part of it um, and so that is led by Wes Ely um, and anyone who has ever done any reading about delirium he wrote probably 20 of those articles that you guys read <laughs> he he's actually going to be here in June um, which is this month he's going to be here next week he's going to be doing a presentation from 5 to six forty-five in auditorium H next Wednesday for nurses have staff, respiratory therapists, and then he's doing medical grand rounds next Friday. And this is an incredible opportunity to see the person who created the CAM ICU and a lot of the delirium work. Um, and so the ICU Liberation Group, we're one of, I think, 40 hospitals on the east coast that's a part of it, um, is focusing on the entire ABCDEF bundle, so delirium is just part of it. So um, it's mostly focusing in ICUs, but it is applicable to other areas, so the first A is um, assessing and treating pain first, as Natalie mentioned. B is doing spontaneous wakings and spontaneous breathing trials, so assessing for readiness to extubate every single day. Um, We implemented spontaneous breathing trials with the leadership of um, Scott two years ago. We've had an incredible amount of success with that. But now we need to stop sedation every day and see how the patients are doing, and if it's okay, they're doing well, only not turn it back on or only turn it on 50% of what it was. C is using the right sedation, so that's been really hard in the cardiac areas where things like benzodiazepines may not affect you cardiac-wise as much as something like presidex or propofol, which could drop your blood pressure or heart rate, and you can imagine cardiac surgeons really don't want that. Um, and then D is delirium. E is early mobility. We have some really great nurse champions that have been working on that in the medical ICU and the surgical ICU. We're trying to get more involvement in the CBCC, which has been um, wonderful. And then F is family involvement. So we, Karen Thorpe, who's on your project, has also been on our project, And she created this really great one-page handout based on um, a handout from Vanderbilt that has everything about what you can expect with delirium. And we actually included that in the new ICU handbook, which should be coming out soon. Mm -hmm. And so we have that in the waiting room. It's been approved by publishing. We can have it available for just about anyone. It's specific to critical care, but it's pretty awesome. And then um, I also applied for uh, C grant money from the Society of Critical Care Medicine to start a post-intensive care support group. Um, For people who have been through intensive care because a lot of people have PTSD It's about 60 to 80 percent of mechanically ventilated patients that are delirious So it's even higher than in the med-surge areas and these patients are often left out into the world and there's nothing for them They can't balance their checkbook. They forget how to do little simple things The cognitive delays are just astounding and then there's no one out there to say I will help you through this so hopefully um, I have a facilitator and everything, and hopefully, we'll get that grant money and um, we will have that going by the end of the year. So, the F part of it is very, very important.
1: I've I'm just thrown the CVCC on the bandwagon <laughs> and said, Well, we're just going to join on the side here. It's care. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Mary. I'm just
4: curious. So, Jane is the medical practice committee. Yes. And Genevieve and Jane both work surgical. How has the involvement of
1: the surgical practice committee be been the involvement of the CT surgeons? How's that going? So that is certainly, um, because we do have the different populations, um, been a challenge, and we are st- continuing to work with them. Um, unfortunately, we have had a lot of surgical practice area council meetings, and we haven't had the surgeons there recently to really discuss this at this point. So, we are continuing to try to work on that effort to get them on board with us. So, who are your physician champions right now?
2: Right now, Alan
1: Kono is our physician champion for cardiology. Yeah, as the medical director for CBCC, and then for ICCU Siskiyou Bruce as the medical director, Sergio. So, and we've been talking to them, I mean, we were focusing on the nursing piece as far mm-hmm. as the assessment goes, and now as we move and in, into now what are the interventions, we will definitely bring them in more and try to get more buy-in um, from the physicians and get more of a physician team also.
3: Now that CBCC has um, the intensivists working in there, that might be a nice inroad into the... The challenges of surgeons? Yeah. yeah. And the larger abcdf bundle group, um, Athos Rassius is going to be um, the lead for CBCC and uh, Josh Mancini for the surgical ICU, Jeff Munson for the medical ICU. And then Julia Peters, who is an anesthesia attending, currently is coming back to do a critical care fellowship. She's going to lead the larger group with me. So we have really good buy-in from the physician level for the big group. The big picture. Great.
4: This is a question, but more of a comment. I just want to make a plug for an upcoming nursing grand rounds. It's in August, and it's actually the Inbreed students that are going to be here this summer. They do a nursing grand rounds um, presentation of their experience, and in the past, it's been really impressive yeah. um, what they've accomplished over the summer. So it's going to be August 9th in Auditorium G.
0: Thanks for coming everybody. <laughs>